Hello, friends. This is Dr. Randy Lane Bunch. Thanks for tuning into the broadcast today. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can go to our website at connectingpc.org. If you'd like to know more about our international digital outreach ministry, Connecting Point Communications, you can go to my personal website at randylanebunch.org. Under the media link, you'll find an abundance of resources free and available to you 24-7. If you'd like to make a tax-deductible donation to help us carry the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world, you can simply go to randylanebunch.org backslash donate. God bless you and thanks for listening. Well, I, I ministered this this morning, but um, I was more convinced after I got done preaching this than I was before. As I was, you know, I, I used to never ever preach a set of old notes. I, I, I don't know why, but I felt like I was dishing out leftovers, I guess. I, I just never felt comfortable doing that. But in more recent years, I felt like the Lord told me to do that. In fact, I felt like He, you know, and I found that it's very helpful for me because sometimes you forget what you knew. And I found that if I don't go back over some of the things that I've preached in times past, it's like, oh yeah, I remember that. That was that was actually something God spoke to me in a significant way. So this morning as I was preparing, or actually I should say yesterday as I was preparing, I was going through some of the old things that I had shared in days gone by. And this message really stood, uh, stood out to me for a couple of different reasons. But on a personal level, I just wanted to share why I feel <laughs> that it's particularly apropos to me. I think it's very easy... Living in the world we do right now, in the cultural moment that we're in right this present moment, to be overwhelmed. Um, the Bible said, Jesus said, in, I think it's Matthew 24, I have the reference, but I, I, don't, I don't remember, but I think it's Matthew 24. Jesus said that because in the last days lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. And I was thinking about that this morning before I got into preach. I happened to glance at Facebook, and I wished I hadn't, because I saw an article from Fox News about a mother that was incensed because her son was sent home being accused of sexual harassment. Well, when she heard that, she freaked. Because when she thinks sexual harassment, like us, she thinks he groped somebody, or he, he assaulted somebody, or he, you know, he did something horrible. No, what he did was he didn't use the right pronoun on someone who identifies as a gender other than the one they were born. So this kid's being sent home, accused of sexual harassment, because he didn't use the appropriate pronoun you know, for the gender <laughs> identification of this individual. So needless to say, it's a huge deal. Now it's exploded, and you know, thank God it's exploded, and this thing will probably end up going to court. I hope it does. And I hope it gets to the right court and that some kind of precedent is established. That thing is kind of out with that. Some friends of ours from the church came to us afterward and let us know that some of these battles that they know of personally are going on and there are some victories being made right now along this idea of uh, gender, gender distinction. But nevertheless, that stuff will make you old before your time. I mean, hearing that kind of nonsense just wears you out. And after a while, you get to the point where, Lord, if they want to go to hell that bad, can't we just let them? You know what I mean? We all, I think at one time or another, felt like that about some segment of society that was just purposely rebellious against God. And yet for us as believers, we can't do that. We still have to exemplify the love of God and be Jesus, His hands and feet to the world. I know on a personal level, like I said, this particularly hits home because I'm inundated with people coming to us, wanting us to minister on their behalf. And, you know, at first I was always so excited to do this and still love to do it. But, you know, hey, hey, brother, can you speak for us? And by the way, can you help feed our people? Or can you help bus them in? Or can you? And I, I understand the need. We're talking about parts of the world where they don't have the abundance that we have in the United States. But at the same time, 
I'm not the Savior, and I'm not uh, Elon Musk, or I'm not Bill Gates, or I don't have those deep pockets. I, I can't do it. And so when you get that so many times and feel the sense kind of the helplessness, Jesus said, the poor you'll have with you always, you're never going to meet every need. And yet here they come, like a tidal wave, day after day, kind of lapping against you know the side of your boat, as it were, reminding you that there's one more thing you just simply can't do. You don't have the world all to do it. And so you, you get what you call compassion fatigue. And I had asked the Lord at the beginning of my... 50s, I said, Lord, I want this to be my most fruitful decade. And I think he really honored that. I think we produced like four books. I started, you know, teaching at Summit Bible College. Actually, a little bit before that, I think I started teaching at Summit. But all these things, you know, the, 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 the overseas ministry, you know, this last month, 5.1 million people, you know, 300 saved a month or more. All that's great. But it also wears you out. It has a, There's a cost associated with that stuff. You have to learn to set boundaries and pace yourself. And I've learned that there's a real skill in life between being aware of and compassionate toward the needs God brings your way and setting appropriate boundaries so that people don't wear you out. Because, uh, you know, again, there's always going to be another need. And, and the thing is, I, I have to be really careful because every day I could show you on my message feed, there's new people wanting just to say hello. But like I said, because of my past experience, those introductions are charged in my mind with baggage that probably doesn't belong to that individual. You know what I'm saying? I'm laying on them the baggage I picked up from other people wanting some time and attention. And I have to be careful because, uh, you know, you just don't want to bite everybody's head off. You know what I'm saying? So I'm just saying that you have to find that gentle balance between setting appropriate boundaries and yet being available for the needs that God would have you to meet. So this idea about loving people and being available to people, but at the same time being I guess, sensitive and self-aware of your own limitations. All this is kind of going to come into play, I think, to some degree. But I really want to talk about kind of maintaining a tender heart and also about doing something. Uh, You know, the love of God is the highest ethic. And when it comes to how we should behave, how we should respond, what would Jesus do really is a good line of reasoning, a line of thought. And we know that he would always defer to love, but that doesn't mean he'd always give in to every pressure or every need. Jesus also knew how to sometimes, again, establish boundaries and recognize hypocrisy and recognize maybe people that were trying to come at him from an angle to take advantage of him and his celebrity for their particular agenda. So all these things have to be taken into consideration when we're talking about this stuff. But I want to read out of Galatians 6, verses 1 through 3. Very familiar verse of scripture about restoring a fallen brother. But I want to say this. Even though this is talking about brethren fallen in trespass, how many of you know there's also brethren that are fallen in homelessness? There's brethren that are fallen, you know, financially. There's brethren that are fallen in marriage. Or there's brethren that are fallen between the cracks, right? Or they just lost their job. In other words, there's not just this kind of need that can be reflected in this verse, but it's also talking about rushing in and meeting the need of people that are at a low moment in life. And so I want to kind of broaden our thought patterns to include that as well. Galatians 6, verses 1 through 3. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, or we could say this, in any trouble, In other words, if somebody finds himself on the wrong end of a crisis, right? You who are spiritual, restore such one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourselves, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Now, in our country, we have, and I'm sure you're aware of it, we have what we call Good Samaritan Laws. And they're designed to protect people who choose to render emergency aid to those in a moment of need. Particularly, let's say there's an accident on the highway. If you are an EMT, a doctor, or an other trained medical professional, you're obligated by law to stop if there's an accident or some kind of situation where somebody might need uh, medical aid. But if you're a civilian, you have no such legal um, obligations placed upon you. So these 
And of course, obviously, we live in a very sue-happy, or what's known as litigious society, where people are suing people left and right. And so these laws were put in place to give absolution, if you will, impunity to those who choose to get involved. In other words, we could say they're put there to keep people not from passing by, but to get involved and participate in someone's crisis moment. They're to encourage people to get involved and make an investment in the herding. Now, just real recently, like I said, I'm not wearing my brace tonight, although I probably should be. I'm always afraid, you know, that I'm going to hit it on the edge of a table or something, like that, and I'm going to really wish I'd worn my brace. But nevertheless, you know, it's only been, what, two and a half months, not quite three months ago, that I was in that head-on collision, and it was something to experience. I mean, I, I never want to experience anything like that, obviously, again, so long as I live. But in that moment, um, I remember... Immediately after the impact, sitting in the dark, looking across the road and seeing the other individual in his car, uh, of course, you know, that turned out to be a fatal situation for him. It was a heartbreaking situation, but it just took moments for people to begin to come to my vehicle as well as his. And I did not recognize who it was. I would not have remembered after all these many years either. Uh, but anyway, a, a young lady, I say young lady, a lady our age, that went to high school with us. I'm thinking young because we went to high school together. Uh, she came to the side of my vehicle, not knowing who I was. And, and ask, are you all right? Uh, and all that kind of thing. And, you know, I'm, I'm obviously in a state of shock. I was giving answers to questions that had no coherency whatsoever. They kept asking me, uh, you know, were you unconscious? Were you unconscious? I said, no, I was going to work. Um, and I know what they meant was, were you rendered unconscious? And I said, no, I couldn't have been unconscious. I was driving. Uh, it made sense to my head at the time. So I looked back on that and I thought, oh, that probably didn't make sense, did it? Um, but nevertheless, there was a lady, uh, her name was Karen, and she was at my door relatively quickly. Are you okay? I kept asking about the other individual. Are they okay? Are they okay? She said, you want just just relax, you know, let's focus on you right now kind of thing. She, not those exact words, but kind of like that. And, you know, just kind of, and I said, well, somebody call my wife. I, I didn't know where my phone was. I wasn't even thinking about my phone. I said, well, somebody call my wife. They said, what's your number? I said, I don't know. <laughs> on my phone, it just says my little wife. You know, I don't know the number. We don't do numbers anymore. We just do names, right? And cell phones. So finally, I remembered, you know, because I was just, uh, I said, started shouting it out. I'm not going to shout it out now because it's online. Everybody call my wife. But anyway, I started calling out the number. And somebody kind of, I heard somebody kind of laugh and say, he's calling out the number. And so she dialed Maria. And at first, Maria thought it was a prank call. It's like, you know, your, your husband was in a serious accident near my house. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, and she said, what, what, what kind of car was he driving? She said, well, I really can't tell. But his license plate is, and then when she said my license plate, she was like, oh, my gosh. So her and Blaine rushed down there. And, of course, like I said, there were people around, you know, first responders, people that were there to help. And I'm telling you, when you're in a moment like that, you are so dependent upon other people, the goodness of humanity, right? What, what, what there is in, like, like Abraham Lincoln said, the better angels of our nature, you're dependent upon people stepping up. And you know what's amazing to me is that, you know, for all the evil we see in our world, it is amazing to me how many good people do step up in times of crisis, whether it's giving to flood victims or, you know, whatever. Maybe somebody has died and they don't have the money to be buried, and so people get a GoFundMe thing going together. You know, people are generally, they try to help those in their community oftentimes. And even in our nation, we'll see people respond when there's a crisis like 9-11. The whole world sympathizes with us. And so there still is that aspect in humanity where we're touched with the, you know, the sorrows of others, right? And we reach out and help. And so thank God for people who are willing to get involved and thank God for those good Samaritan laws to protect people who run the risk of involvement, maybe even at some cost to themselves, running into a burning building, right, or whatever. Uh, and so thank God those laws are there to protect people. As far as I know, however, there are no spiritual good Samaritan laws. In other words, there's nothing to say that if you get involved with a hurting brother or sister, that it won't cost you on some level. 
And in fact, it's very likely to cost you on several levels. It's going to cost you time. It's going to cost, cost you an investment of your heart. You're going to get attached. You're going to get involved, right? That's another part of it. You're going to get involved. Who wants to get involved when I can just mind my own business, right? And then sometimes we end up getting hurt by the very ones we're endeavoring to help. Now, sometimes this is due to the fact that people help the wrong way. I've seen that happen too, particularly in my years of ministry. I've seen people want to help when really the help wasn't welcomed and it wasn't really appropriate. So we have to know when to get involved. We have to know not to get in over our head. Again, setting proper boundaries. Know what level of investment we should be involved with. And then, of course, sometimes we're not the right person for the task. Sometimes there's a need, and it needs to be met, but not necessarily by you or I, right? Particularly sometimes close family members. uh, Maybe they need to get saved, but maybe we're not the one to witness to them. And there's other situations sometimes where you may not be the individual who's in the right position or maybe the right individual to help somebody else. In my experience as a believer, but even more so as a pastor, I've found that oftentimes where I've made the greatest investment is where I've gotten the most teeth marks. In other words, that's where I got bit. I got, I got a little bit wounded. I'll never forget one time, phone rang, and I went and picked up the phone, and, or somebody handed me the phone, actually, and then it was somebody that I'd spent more time with. This is my, in my early 20s, just early in the pastor. I spent more time with this individual, ministering to their need, encouraging them, kind of, you know, picking them up out of the doldrums and the mud grubs than I had anybody else in the church. But because for whatever reason, I hadn't been as consistent being there at the house and holding their hand and doing all that kind of thing, you know, they just unloaded on me. You know, what kind of pastor are you? You know, that kind of thing. And you know, I'm in my 20s. This person's well into their nearly their 60s. And so I just kind of took it and just tried to make what justifications I could. I got off the phone in tears. And I thought to myself, I've invested more into this individual than I have in all the rest of the church members combined because of the neediness of that individual. And, and yet at the same time, that's where the wound comes. And oftentimes it's just because you got close. Just because you made yourself available and vulnerable to a hurting person. One of the things I love to watch on Facebook, there's this little thing called, uh, on Facebook, a little uh, video to come up called, by a little group called uh, the Dodo. And it's got a little Dodo bird, a little animated Dodo bird. But a lot of times what they'll show are dog rescues. And I love watching these things. They're hard to watch at the beginning because you'll find some, you know, they'll find some dog in the alley that's emaciated near death or one that's been abandoned in a garage, you know, by people that moved away and didn't bother to take their dog and haven't fed it. And of course, you know, oftentimes they're matted or like one I saw yesterday, it looked like something like a greyhound. You thought it would have been a greyhound, but it was actually a much larger dog once they got it fed and back to health. But when they first find that dog without fail, guess what? They're trying to help that dog, and it's what? Nearly trying to bite their hand off, bite their head off, because, you know, they're trying to get that little, what you call that last new thing around the neck, uh, to rescue the dog, but he thinks it's just one more person trying to do them harm. So oftentimes when you're trying to do good, it can come across as, like I said, you can end up wounded simply because you made yourself available, you got yourself in proximity, you ended up with teeth marks on your heart. And sometimes that happens. Like I said, it's heartbreaking to see people at a low point in life. And like any rescue worker, it's going to leave scars on our heart, right? Especially when we deal with people in trauma. So why in the world would you want to do it? Why do we want to get involved? Why do we want to even bother if the cost can be so extremely high? And this is why. Because the love of God is absolutely indistinguishable and invisible until it's in motion. All the love in our hearts won't change anything. It's only when our love goes into motion, goes into action, that it makes a difference. In other words, love does. We should think of love not so much as a noun, but as a verb. It's something that we do, not just something that we feel. 
It doesn't sit on the sidelines. It doesn't act like it didn't see. You know, that's always uncomfortable to me. We always pass homeless people on our way to church in the morning. And, you know, sometimes we'll give, you know, whatever. But you can't do it every single time. You know, for one thing, you don't have cash or change in the car. So there's this awkward moment where you're kind of looking forward and they're kind of looking at you. And, you know, you're kind of playing this game of are they seeing me, not see them, or, you know, that kind of thing. And that's always an awkward thing. But love always sees the need. It doesn't pass by on the other side of the road. It gets involved with the mess. I think there's some basic ethics in our society that have been lost. And that loss has affected the church as well. In fact, it's interesting, Luke 6.31 says, And just as you want men to do to you, do also to them likewise. Again, love is the highest ethic, and it should always inform our behavior. And like we said, love is defined, both biblically and practically, by what it does, not by what it feels. Now, I want to read you another verse if you want to look at it with me. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, and we'll look at verses 16 through 18. John here, speaking of, you know, John was a great apostle of love. And uh, he says this in 1 John three sixteen through 18. By this we know love. In other words, this is what love looks like. Because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. It's just another way of saying love gets involved. Do we spend more time avoiding the inconvenience, or do we spend time trying to figure out how we can be practically a helping hand in these situations? I think this thing, like I said, is very subtle. But it becomes a reality for all of us, particularly when we see so much need. We don't know what to do. It's very easy for our heart to grow cold. I was listening to a favorite communicator of mine some years back, and he was dealing with this very phenomenon. And I, I remember the stories when I was writing out these notes, so I included them. But he was talking about three situations that happened right here in our own nation. Because the guy that was communicating was like, he's from Great Britain. But he was talking about three different situations that happened right here in the good old USA that shows how the increasing indifference of people is such a problem. He said the first one happened, think, think about this, in an emergency room, in an emergency waiting room. So it's not the emergency room, but it's in the waiting room adjacent to the emergency, right? And so people are there obviously, you know, have had loved ones, different people come in, they're waiting to see about. And there's an older lady sitting in the emergency room, filled with people. She pitches over in the floor having a seizure and dies. And nobody got out of their chair. I mean, you know, obviously the medical staff, had they seen it in time, would have no doubt rushed in and tried. But just the people, the civilians sitting there, watched it happen and didn't get involved. Why didn't they get involved? Well, probably that same reason. Well, I, I don't, I'm not a medical professional. I don't want to be responsible. And the woman died right there in the floor. I don't know, maybe they wouldn't have been able to help her or not. But still, the fact that somebody didn't rush over, you know, call for a nurse, something... Uh, the other one was a man in the same, same situation, same study. And they showed a man trying to cross the street, an older man, you know, somewhat infirm, limited in his ability to move, trying to get across the street. He was hit. The car spun him around, and the car just kept going. And another car clipped him. It didn't knock him, like, it didn't, like, knock him out. And, and he finally hobbled across the street. No one slowed down. And, and people are looking at this and thinking, what in the world is happening to our society? And I mean, that's a good question to ask. And then one of them, I thought this one was interesting, because I think we'd all probably relate to the feelings of reticence that people have, because they did another study where they had a, a young child actor. And they had this child go through the mall as though it were lost. And they wanted to see how long it took for somebody, some adult, somebody responsible, to engage with that child to see if they needed help. 
They had to do the experiment three different times before finally an older gentleman stopped and asked the child if they were okay. Where's your mother? And so, of course, after he did that, they all came out from their hiding places like Candid Camera and said, okay, we want to know, why did you get involved when so many other people didn't? He said, well, to be honest with you, he said, I've been watching the child for a while, probably monitoring, making sure they're okay. And he said, but I didn't want to get involved unless somebody think I'm a pedophile. And, and unfortunately, you know, with a child abductions or anything else, that, that's the label that we fear. And so, because of all this, like I said, there's this indifference. People are unwilling to get involved. The only problem is, love isn't love until it's in motion. It's always getting involved. Like I said, this gets more complicated when we're talking about getting involved with hurting people. Like I said, it takes more than a casual investment. I remember when Maria and I were first involved with Pakistan. It wasn't through the television, even though it's the same people that were uh, on TV with that we first got involved with. At first, it started out just helping some kids in an orphanage. And basically, we I don't, I don't remember, Pastor John reached out to me like so many do. But it was early on in the process, so I wasn't burned out yet. So I was really open and responsive, and he said, can you help with our orphan children? They had about, I forget, 36, something like that, orphan children. And it takes about $11 a month to feed them. So I thought, well, that's something we can do. We can't maybe do all of them, because, you know, that would be like $300, $400, something like that. We didn't quite have that, just a little burgeoning church, you know. But I thought, as a missions outreach, we didn't really have anything designated as missions, that that would be a great thing to do. You know, who says you have to always support a preacher? Why not support a starving kid, right? So we thought, why not do that? And so we started helping out. And, of course, we gave, like, I think the first time, like, 100 bucks. So we, I think we covered, like, almost half the cost that month, if I remember rightly, because of what they already had or whatever. I don't remember, but it seems like that. But then, and, and so they thanked us. Thank you for helping the kids this month. But what's the obvious question? What about next month? Do they just go hungry? Do we just say, well, look at what we did. Boy, aren't we special Christians? Because we fed them one time. And so we kind of asked that. And they said, well, you know, we're always looking for support. And in fact, at one time, it's interesting to me. Because, now, what's funny to me now is the, in, the individual that I work with in Pakistan, at that time he told me, Randy, we've reached out to many churches and ministries, but you're the only one who's responded to this need. Now that they have television and people are jumping on board and getting on TV, a lot of people are involved with them. But back then when they didn't have that to offer, and it was just money and resources they needed, they didn't have as much help. At least that seems like what I was getting out of what he was saying to me. And so we began to get involved on a more consistent level. So every month, that was our mission thing, we let the people here at the church know, and people would give sometimes specially to that, but we would always say at least 100, sometimes more. And then, of course, other needs would come up. And sometimes we didn't have the money for those things. Sometimes they needed air conditioning for the hot, hot, hot summers, and we didn't have the money to supply the AC units. Or other times they needed school fees or clothes for the kids. And so sometimes we did do that. And then they would send us little you know, pictures of them with their the little diplomas from whatever elementary or secondary school or whatever they'd gone to there. And uh, it was wonderful. And of course, they had these kids that worked like slaves in the brick kilns, working off family debt. Sometimes they're there for generations, trying to work off what would be for you and I a relatively small debt. But, you know, that's just the way it is. In that part of the world, I have some friends that actually are very involved with paying off those debts and getting those people out of slavery and getting them educated and getting them into a um, you know some kind of livelihood. They cost us money. It cost us money we could have put on a project that would have been closer to home. And people always want to know when you're ministering to people like that. Well, what about the homegrown needs we have right here? Well, you know, starving people are starving people, whether it's in America or Pakistan or India or wherever else. I mean, flip a coin. Needs are everywhere. So, yeah, I think it's good to prioritize local needs. But, you know, at the same time, we don't want to be ignoring needs elsewhere in the world. Uh, it cost us time. I remember the frustrating process I'd have to go through just to get that money to them. At the time, 
I wasn't using Western Union. Oh, thank you, Jesus, for Western Union. Because back then I had to go down to the store and use MoneyGram. And when I went down there, without fail, when I said I want to send $100 to Pakistan, they looked at me like I was a terrorist. You know, what are you sending for? Blasting caps? Dynamite? What is it for? You know, that's where they found out Osama bin Laden, you know. That's how I felt. And I'll never forget, I tried to use MoneyGram online, and they blocked me. They literally blocked me. And I was like, persona non grata. I couldn't even log in to MoneyGram online because I tried to send money to Pakistan. You know, I get it. That was, you know, there's a height of the, you know, um, ISIS and all that kind of thing. So I get it. But at the same time, here I'm trying to feed hungry kids, and then of course people have, now do you know these people? Are you sure you're not being scammed? Yeah, I'm smarter than that. I know I'm not being scammed. I know these people. I know what they were doing. But just the hassle. And then of course there's a certain emotional investment because you see what you're not able to do. You're only addressing a part of the need. So all of that, like I said, is, is a great cost. I'm telling you, getting involved will mess you up. If you want, you know, if you never want to cry, uh, if you never want to feel that, you know, burden of your heart, then just stay clear of needs because I tell you, once you get involved, it will mess you up. So I want to take a look at the story of the Good Samaritan that, you know, we talked about those Good Samaritan laws. Let's take a look at that story in Luke chapter 10. And we're going to look at verses 25 through 37. Luke 10, uh, 25 through 37. I know it's a familiar story, but I think there's still stuff to mine out of this great story. And there, uh, there's, there's so many dynamics. You know, in Jesus' day, he was dealing with political issues, racial issues, cultural issues, religious issues. And to dance around all of that and to come up with a good answer, you've got to hand it to the Lord. I mean, I know he was God in the flesh, but he needed every bit of it <laughs> to dance around some of these people that were always coming after him. But Luke chapter 10, beginning with verse 25, it says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, he's testing Jesus. He's not wanting to know. You know, I, I'm really interested in going to heaven. He's wanting to catch Jesus in his words. And he said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. End of the discussion, right? No. Verse 29. That he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So what this guy is asking is, and what would that bare minimum be? What is the requirement that I have to do you know, toward my neighbor. And who is my neighbor? Is he the guy on my right and left? Is he the guy across the street? Is it just my neighborhood? What, what, what is, you know, who is my neighbor? And Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down to Jer- from Jerusalem to Jericho. And by the way, that, that road is, was famous in Jesus' day for people getting robbed. So th- they already know the tension here. They already know what's going on. So Jesus is heading up this You know, when Jesus starts to tell a story, you know, uh, you're going to get a bigger answer probably than, you know, what you asked for, but here it goes. He says, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, him, uh, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a, a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. None of this is lost on these guys. So Jesus says, Okay, first of all, a pastor went by, put it in our modern day parlance. 
And then a staff member or a church volunteer went by. Those, both those guys. You know, we're busy. We're on our way to do ministry, right? So we're going to pass on the other side. And so we pass him up. And then all of a sudden, here comes a hell's angel on his motorcycle, right? And this, that, this would be, you know, equal to what we're talking about. The guy who doesn't go to church, probably hadn't bathed in a couple of days, on his way to the, on his way to the bar to hang out with his buddies. But then he sees this homeless guy, or not a homeless guy, somebody that's been robbed, taken advantage of. And there he's wounded. And so what does he do? He parks his, his Harley, <laughs> gets off, and goes over and starts saving to the fella, throws him over his saddlebags on his bike, takes him to urgent care, pays his deductible or whatever you know the fee is to get him help in urgent care, and then not only that, but makes sure that he's got long-term care. And I'm, I'm going to come back and check on him later. So this is kind of the scenario Jesus is setting up. In other words, let's take it out of let's let's remove the religious thing. In other words, these guys are saying, "Who's my neighbor?" And Jesus is really saying, "What kind of neighbor are you?" And he's saying, "I don't really particularly care if you're religious or have a title or involved with a church." We would say, "But what kind of person?" I know one one of my favorite communicators say, "I'm not just trying to make good Christians anymore. I'm just trying to make good people," because a lot of times we can use the badge of Christian, right, to to excuse ourselves from just daily kindnesses that normal people would do and not think twice about it or not even attribute it to God. It's just what you do. (laughs) It's called being a good neighbor. And, you know, like, for example, it used to be nothing. You never think twice. If you're mowing your lawn and the neighbor nearby was hurt or older, you just go mow theirs too. I remember days like that. Right? Or if somebody's kid was, you know, got out of the house, a little toddler, you didn't say, man, I sure hope they get the kid out of that street, man. I, man, let's see what happens here. No, you'd go out there and you'd, or you'd knock on your neighbor's door. You'd get involved. And they may not appreciate it. You may bring your toddler over, the crying toddler back home, and they might kind of be irritated because they didn't see it first or whatever. But so what? You don't let the kid get hit. Right? Just decent things <laughs> that make our world a better place that have been lost, like I said, by and large, in society. So the pastor and the deacon, they didn't get involved, <laughs> right? But Jesus says, what kind of neighbor are you? We don't want to emulate that. We want to be like the Harley guy. <laughs> we want to be like the good Samaritan. What did he do? He had compassion. He was not just, he didn't just have compassion. He was moved. He did something. He was moved with compassion. He tended to his wounds. That took time and effort, right? Took some level of like using what you had, your resources. He put him in his car, back on his bike, his donkey, whatever you want to say. Took him to urgent care. Right? He arranged for long-term care, and then he paid his bill. Jesus said, that's what I want you to do. That's what a good neighbor looks like. In other words, just being a decent human being, meeting those at the point of need with the same care you would want if you were there yourself. We should be more uncomfortable with the idea of not getting involved than we are with the trouble of getting involved. We should be bothered by the idea of not being bothered. We should desire to be involved. Now, you know, you've got to qualify this. You can't get involved with every single need you see. Like I said, you've got to learn to set boundaries. I know in my own life, that has burned me out, trying to, how can I be an answer to this? And, and it's not even just doing something or not doing something. It's just feeling the weight of it on you. So sometimes you just have to set some boundaries. You know, shut off social media or shut off the news or whatever you have to do to not lose your peace of mind. Because you never forfeit peace, Right? To me, Jesus said, the poor are going to have with you always. So you did meet every need in the world today. And you know what? Well, I'll be back tomorrow. Because that's just the nature of the world. So you can't get overwhelmed with that. But at the same time, you don't want to become callous and just say, well, there's all those needs out there. I'm not getting involved. Well, good am I, you know. So there's got to be a balance, like I said. Um, the other thing is, I think it's very important not to be manipulated by guilt and not to put guilt on other people. 
I like to watch some of my faith friends say this. You know, faith never puts pressure on other people. I, I'm big time that way when it comes to finance. You know, we do very little mentioning of money at all with the things that we do. And, and I've said it before, and I've meant it with every fiber of my being, that if the money just didn't come in, we just quit. I'm not the Savior. Jesus doesn't need me to save the world. And, and if I don't do what I'm doing, somebody else will jump up and do it and maybe do it better. So I, I don't... I don't guilt people into giving, you know, we'll have to go off the air over there if we don't have such and such, but, well, then we'll just go off the air. And I don't mean that, I don't mean that in a cavalier way, but I'm just saying, I'm not going to put undue pressure on people to try to make my vision come to pass. And be honest with you, I'm, I'm probably, one of my friends, he said it this way, he said, you know, Randy, my, my greatest temptation is in life and ministry, and he has a very large missions ministry, he said, my biggest temptation is not the girl, the gold, and the glory. He said, my biggest temptation is just to quit. He said, quit all this international stuff and just go get myself a little home office and just go to little local churches and you know minister to a handful of folk. I mean, that not sound wonderful. You know, just no pressure, just easy. Receive little offerings from little congregations and live your life and mind your own business. <laughs> Sounds wonderful. But you know, sometimes God puts a vision on your heart that you just can't say no to. You know, the Good Samaritan was not out looking for a wounded, broken man. He wasn't looking to get involved, but he was there. And sometimes, as one fellow said, you don't have to be Mother Teresa to help set up chairs. Sometimes there's just a need, right? And you just respond because you're the one that's there. And you use whatever resource you have, whatever you can do. He simply acted in compassion when confronted with someone else's need. And we can certainly do that. You know, going back to this verse that we uh, talked about at the beginning, if anyone's overtaken in any trespass, you which are spiritual, restore such a one with a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also are tempted. You know, sometimes we get involved you can get involved, it can be a detriment to you as well. You have to be, like I said, careful and have the right boundaries established. But I'll never forget, uh, you know, like I said, you know, some people aren't easy to help. <laughs> because you're trying to help them, but they're not doing much to help themselves. And so, again, sometimes, like I said, you've got to be discerning and all this kind of stuff. But I think there's some takeaways that we can have. And that is this, is that if we really are spiritual people, we will help. Brother Hagin said, you know, he read that verse one day. He was a member of a denomination at the time that was pretty famous for uh, finishing off their wounded. You know, maybe some guy had a moral failure. Some guy stumbled and fell and whatever. And he said, we were pretty good at walking up to the guy, loading up one more shell in our chamber and putting him out of his misery, you know. And, you know, kind of kick him out of the ministry kind of thing. And he said, Lord, that's not what the Bible says to do. The Bible said we should restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, concerning ourselves. You know, in other words... Who are we to judge that guy, right? It could be been us, same situation, same temptations. He said, why don't we do that? And the Lord said, read the verse. If any of you are overtaken and trespassed, you which are spiritual, restore such a one in spirit of meekness. He said, yeah, Lord, that's what I'm talking about. Why don't we do that? He said, read it again. He read the verse three or four times. He wasn't getting it. So the Lord finally told him, if any of you were spiritual, you would. <laughs> so sometimes we're a lot more carnal because we're considering ourselves rather than we are. I've seen people that rejoice over the fall of another person because it makes them feel better about themselves. At least I didn't do that. Right? But what we might be doing may be considered worse, right? The judgmental, critical, mean spirit to assume that we're better than that, I think, can sometimes be worse. Amen. It is our obligation to help the fallen pick themselves back up. It doesn't mean that we have to do, like I said, meet every single need. Sometimes it's getting them to the right resources where they can get help. There have been times where Marie and I have helped people limitedly. I just had a friend reach out to me. Uh, and he had been homeless for a while. He, he was a student of mine at Summit, and he just got a place. And so I rejoiced with him, and we helped some. But, you know, we, again, stayed within our boundaries of what we could do. And I think we helped, and maybe some help from the church here. I can't remember, but we gave him a little bit of help. But you can only do what you can do. 
And, uh, and then other people are stepping in as well. You know, sometimes I think we forget. Sometimes we, we're the body of Christ. It's not just one member doing it all, right? But the member members coming together collectively. Bible said, if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. You know, it's the only time I can think of in Scripture where the Bible says, you may think you're something, but you're really nothing. When you overesteem yourself over somebody else simply because they ran into a rough patch in life. And I think we just have to be very careful. I guess everybody has a different reaction. I think it's, we're all tempted to be critical when somebody has a bad moment in life. Uh, especially if we know they kind of brought it on themselves. But at the same time, I think it ought to bring a sense of godly fear on us as well. Because we're all made out of the same stuff. We're all liable to the same temptations and pressures. I think we just have to be careful uh, how we respond. Again, just reading this as we close. You know it, so let me just read it to you. 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Like I said, I've, I've been around. Um, you'll never meet anybody in your life, I think, that is as unimpressed as I am with people's titles or names or who they know. Uh, you know, when I was in Tulsa for a number of years and being around just, you know, and I've had the privilege of meeting, knowing some true generals in the faith that I have high respect for. But then there's always those people who, because they've served with them or they know them or they have connections, they treat it kind of like you would, you know, like these business guys are always passing out their cards. You know what I mean? That kind of thing like, hey, I know so-and-so, I can hook you up kind of thing. And it's like, I just want to, excuse me, I just want to stick my finger down my throat and vomit on you if you'll let me. It's like that just totally does nothing for me. I don't care who you know. The guy that called me is your boss's boss, right? Jesus anointed and called me. So I'm not impressed by who you work for or, or whatever. And don't get me wrong. I might respect that guy that he works for and that he thinks he's so wonderful because he knows. But the fact of the matter is we're all just flesh and blood. And the men and women of God that have impressed me the most have been those who are just so humble. I've had the privilege, like I said, of meeting a handful of, I would call them God's generals. And every time when I've met a real one, I'm always struck by their humility, by how down to earth they are. I remember going up to one when I first went to Ramah. I'd listened to her minister many times on audio tape. And I went up and introduced myself. I said, it's an honor to meet you. And as I'm walking away, she said, it's an honor to meet you as well. I remember, you know, you heard me tell the story before my friend Keith Hershey who went to an evangelist meeting one time and, you know, Bill Bright, all the luminaries were there back in the day, back in the 70s. You know, he was the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ and all these other, uh, Lauren Michael, well, some of these guys, I would mention their names, you wouldn't even know them today maybe, but Keith was just a young guy at the time, just starting off Mutual Faith Ministries International, didn't know anybody. And uh, he was the kind of guy, he grew up in Michigan, he said, I would go down to get a haircut at the local barber, get halfway there and start crying and come home. He was just so shy. And so he kind of carried that into adulthood. He said, I never wanted this, you know, big ministry and everything. So anyway, here he is, a young man, just a young betting evangelist with this ministry. And so he's kind of got his whole plate of food at this luncheon, sitting in a corner down in L.A. somewhere, I think it was. And all of a sudden, he hears his baritone voice say, is this seat available? Can I sit here? And he looks up, and it's Billy Graham. And so he, Billy Graham sits by him, and he said, he said, you would have thought I was the only person on the planet. He looked at me, engaged with me. He wasn't looking to see who else was there, who had noticed him. And then all of a sudden, he hears this, and another guy said, may I sit here? And it's Luis Palau, who's like the Billy Graham of Latin America, just passed away a couple of years ago. So he said, I had Luis Palau on one side, Billy Graham on the other. He said, I'm in the who's who, you know? And he said, I really am in the who's he, you know? But, but at the same time, you know, it's, you know, the company of these great men who don't think overly much of themselves. And, and I think that is such a beautiful virtue to have, 
when it comes to acknowledging the importance of every life, the waiter, the waitress, uh, all that kind of stuff. I'm really big on that. Like you've heard me say many times before, and I know it can sound a little arrogant, but because I don't care if you're so annoyed you go in the dark, if you're rude to a waitress, you're a jerk. And I, I said that one time, and I had a guy respond back really defensively. Well, you know, I, I don't mean to be a jerk, but sometimes they're just rude. And you know, I was like, hey, dude, I wasn't talking to you. His guilty conscience got to him, but. The fact of the matter is, you know, again, I've been bad about that. I've gotten phone calls from people at the wrong time of day wanting to sell me solar panels. Dude, I've got them on my roof already. Maria even had one guy told her she was lying when she said we had solar panels. I'm looking at a a GPS photo of your house right now. You don't have it. She said, well, you need to update your photos (laughs) because we got them on our roof. Called her a liar. Trying to sell her solar panels. Called her a liar. Didn't work. Uh, Nevertheless, but you know, it's easy. Um... Maria's different than me, though. I'll just hang up. She likes to play with him like a cat playing with a dying bird. And, and she'll go on for 20, 30 minutes with him. And, uh, or sometimes she'll just pick up the phone and act like she's speaking in Chinese or something like that. Um, it, it is kind of humorous, but it, it's easy to be dismissive of people. And, but like I said, sometimes, you know, you never know who those people are, I guess is the thing. It's like, you know, that... You know, I, we think about this, we talk about this all the time. We'll see these homeless people downtown Bakersfield and we'll say, I would love to know their story. Where did they come from? How did they get there? And I know this, that there had been, there, there was a moment in my life where I was in between things. And although Larry and others helped me, kind of caught us in a moment where we were between stuff, like I said, between ministry assignments, between homes. And I re- realized in that moment, although, you know, I've never lived my life missing a meal. You can tell I'm, I'm you know. I've always been taken care of. God has always met every need of my life. Every single one. I have nothing to complain about. But I saw how if somebody didn't have that support team, right? If they didn't have those people up, just one or two days away from that kind of support, you can find yourself on the street. Mm-hmm. Right? If you, or, or without a meal. Yeah. And, and thankfully, God's always surrounded me with loving support and people who help. But I'm just saying that, you know, we never know someone's story. Where they came from. You know, you think about some of these guys that are homeless today that were veterans that maybe saved, you know, their buddies in, in Vietnam. They were a hero, but now they've kind of lost ball through the cracks. I'm just saying, you know, these, we call them random acts of kindness, maybe intentional acts of kindness would be better. But just showing love, um, valuing people made in the likeness and image of God, not thinking overly much of ourselves, but putting love into motion. Can't do it every moment of every day for every need. But what we can be is self-aware and, and sensitive to the Spirit of God when He's nudging our hearts to get involved, maybe offer up a little bit of finance and resource. I, I don't know about you, but I've wasted a lot of money over the years on stupid stuff. So there's no reason why I can't take a little bit of that same money and invest it in the life of somebody who's going to go buy a McDonald's meal. Maria, today, you know, I'm, I preached this this morning, and then, you know, we got McDonald's for the, uh, I always say the baby, for Whitley. I, to me, she's still a baby. So she was in there getting her McDonald's. I came in here, and there's a second bag sitting next to the Happy Meal. And I thought, you're going to eat here? And then she turns and gives it to the homeless guy. And I thought, oh, okay. So she's putting, putting to work the morning message. And then, you know, she gets all teary because, you know, the guy's very thankful. And, you know, it's so easy to be dismissive of people because, you know, they're, they're dirty, they're in the way, they're in the business, you know. What are they doing here? And, and I, as a, as a guard, I've had a job at times where you've got to keep them away from certain business establishments. That's not a comfortable thing to do. But it never means we have to be demeaning or disrespectful or devalue their essential personhood, right? We, we still have to value them. And sometimes even just a word of prayer, an encouraging word, 
looking at them in the eye, a handshake, maybe a little fiber in the hand as you, you know, lead them away, whatever the case might be. But just a helping hand. So, you know, thoughts for all of this. I, I don't, I don't, I wish I could sit here and tell you, here's the answers, here's the boundaries, here's the parameters you should walk in. There's no such thing. There's no manual other than the Bible to drop from heaven to tell you, this time do this, this time don't do this. You know, you just have to be led by the Spirit of God, governed by love, use discernment, but at the same time, I guess my big challenge to us is not so much what to do or not do specifically, but to not allow our hearts to get callous. Because I will be honest with you, I have felt that happening to me. I have felt that happening where it's like, I, I could see it would be so easy. I used to be somewhere out, much more outgoing. But I have retreated into very small interpersonal boundaries where I deal with the public enough. You know, I just want to be safe now. You know, I just want my time away from that. I want my little haven at the home. Just don't bother me, you know, outside of that. And so I've had to kind of like challenge that and kind of pull those doors back open, you know, and not let yourself just get so shut in. Because it's easy to do. I can understand why people do. But it's just a challenge to us as believers to keep our hearts open so we can still be the hands and feet of Jesus in our world. Amen? Amen. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity uh, to be difference makers. Lord, to not be uh, <laughs> a respecter of persons. To not just give in the big offerings where people will notice, but maybe to give to the homeless man or woman who um, may not even offer thanks. Uh, or to that one who takes for granted the assistance they receive, or the one who will never see our face. And um, I appreciate those selfless givers who don't let their right hand know what their left hand is doing, who don't need the recognition of their gift to give them a sense of identity or whatever. We just pray, Father God, that we would be selfless in our love for people, discerning certainly, um, but at the same time open-hearted, and not shedding our... Uh, hearts off to the world that if we have the resource to help and, and it's within our might to do it that we would be a part of the answer we thank you Father God for the opportunity to do that in Jesus name Amen I, I forgot this story I want to share this real quick and I'll close but this morning I mentioned this one of my favorite charities that are out there today is, it's ran by a guy named Scott who is a believer it's called Charity Water and it, he, he says this, like, he is a believer a very devoted believer in fact, I think he goes to the Brooklyn Tabernacle in, in Brooklyn where they have the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. But he's a spiritual believer. But he, he, uh, he said, I'm a Christian, but my, my business is not. And what he means by that is he has people like Apple that support his business. But what they do is they drill water wells around the world. And they have gone a long way to uh, taking care of the water problem in the world. I mean, it's like, I forget how many, 600 million people don't have fresh drinking water. They... They had a dent in about a tenth of that. You think about how huge that is. And 100% of what you give to Charity Water goes to drilling wells. They have a completely different organization that supports their overhead. And so he was talking about how one person's act of charity can become contagious and become start an avalanche. He was talking about this one young girl because they had this program where people would like you know raise money for you know a well. And so there's this one young girl that for her birthday, she told her parents, I mean, she was young, like nine, something like nine, maybe, eight, nine, I don't know. But anyway, she wanted to raise, I forget, like $3,000, I could be wrong, maybe 300 I don't remember, but she wanted to raise so much money for charity water for her birthday. And she missed her goal by a little bit. So she was so disappointed, but they sent it off to charity water. Mom said, don't worry about it, we'll, we'll get the goal next year. Well, next year didn't come for her. She died in an automobile accident. The young girl didn't make it. But... The mother was able to share her story on one of these talk shows. 
don't know, I think it was Oprah Winfrey, but something like that. It got word got out because the mother started raising money on her behalf. Then it started GoFundMe's, and then other people got involved. By the time it was over, this young girl, or in her name, millions were raised. And the parents got to go to the place, I think it was in Africa, where they dug the well, it was finished, they dedicated it, it had the little girl's name on it. And the parents got to speak to the tribe that was benefited by that water well. And you think, one little girl's act of kindness opens the door to all this momentum, right? This snowball effect. And sometimes that's all it takes is one person to lead the way, right? Selflessly say, I'll give them five, I'll give five to that. We just had a couple at our church got robbed and uh, a couple weeks back. And somebody came up to me and said, you got any cash? I said, uh, actually, and I never have cash, but I did. I had like 10 bucks. I said, yeah. And so he just went around and got a little bit from everybody and gave it to them. And then when somebody saw that happening, they came to me and said, well, I want to give. And so before you know it, they, they were really blessed by just the generosity of a handful of people with means. And, and it just took one person to say, well, why pray about the need? You know what? That can just be such a cop-out. We'll pray. <laughs> if you got the resources there, you don't need to pray. Just give, right? I mean, prayer is great, but sometimes it's just more practical needs that's, that's uh, or a practical answer that's needed. So, praise God. Anyway, so food for thought for all of us. I know for me. And like I said, if you want to say, well, Randy would just preach it to himself, you would be completely right. But I think all of us can use that because I think all of us have that temptation to feel the pressure to get disconnected from the needs of the world around us. Amen. Thanks for tuning into our broadcast. Again, for more information about Connecting Point Church, you can go to our website at connectingpc.org. To find out more about Connecting Point Communications and our international digital outreach ministry, go to randylanebunch.org.